You're listening to the Career Musician Podcast with creator and host, Nomad. With 20 plus years of experience in the music industry, Nomad has done just about everything to earn a living as a career musician. From being music director to celebrity artists, playing iconic arenas and stadiums, composing for film and TV, and even playing your average local club gigs, he's done it all. Nomad's mission is to empower musicians across the globe with strategies for a sustainable career while blasting stereotypes and to bring you tried and true wisdom from his colleagues in this crazy business we call music. On this episode of The Career Musician, we have music sync licensing agent and publisher Christina Benson. In addition to studying piano and opera, she also served as a loan officer at a bank with her marketing background and acquired a doctorate's degree in philosophy. As if that weren't enough, she decided to open her own sync licensing agency and publishing company. As a native of Orange County, California, she is no stranger to the stage, DJing, and being a member of several indie bands in the Southern California area. The cool thing about Christina is that she has a truly diversified background as a career musician, both in the performance side and the business side. Sit back, take notes, and enjoy this episode of the Career Musician Podcast with none other than Christina Benson, founder of Sweet on Top, Sync Licensing Agency, and publishing company, and all-around model career musician. Welcome, Christina Benson. We are Thank so you. Have you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Okay, so uh, lots to cover. I'll try to flow quickly here so I don't keep you too long. Sweet on top, or licensing company. And a publishing company. And a publishing company. Before we dive into that, because I definitely want to hit that, tell us a little bit about where you're from and how did the music bug bite you? I'm from Orange County and um, I was taking piano lessons basically my whole life. My mother was a very accomplished pianist, so I was always influenced to do that. And then when I got to college, I majored in music, but I also had a quote unquote practical major. My practical major um, was related to urban planning. Then when I graduated, I actually got a job at a bank, but I was still um, I was still playing in bands. I was still I was DJing a lot. I was uh, throwing events. I was doing um, promotion, but it still I didn't know anybody who worked in the music industry. I wasn't that far from LA. I was in Orange County, and like I didn't um, I I grew up just fine. I had everything I needed. I went to summer camp. I mean, I never wanted for anything, but I didn't grow up in a family that was in a position where I didn't have to worry about making a living, if that makes sense. Like, it, it, I wasn't, I wasn't in that position, so I did have to think about like, how am I gonna, how am I gonna make a living? How am I gonna pay for stuff? And it just, I didn't know anybody who could make a living through music, and I didn't understand how the industry worked. I mean, in one of my first bands, I don't think we even knew. I don't think we even knew about ASCAP. I don't think we even knew about BMI, any of that stuff. Right, 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 right. Or at least I didn't, because all I did in that band was play keyboards. I mean, maybe the guys knew, but I mean, I didn't. And then um, how did that change? I guess that changed because I met my now husband, and he had a magazine. He was a music journalist. And I began learning from him about, oh, like, how do these bands just get covered in magazines? I thought someone would, I don't even know what I, I don't even know what I thought. I had this naive idea that someone would figure out they were good magically and I don't know. Then I worried. That, then I learned that there was like this network of PR, and you pay people to talk about you, frankly. And then I kind of connected the dots that everything in the industry must sort of be like that. And then um, from my work in music journalism, which is I kind of got into through him, I began doing A and R to licensing agencies because I would be covering very small bands and from playing in small punk bands myself. And then from the from the A and Ring to licensing agencies. Um, I worked for one and then I was basically running the day to day and then I just started my own. Wow. I love it. Okay. Sorry, that was probably a longer answer than you wanted. No, it's actually perfect. It's just a lot of stuff that I want to unpack because you touched on a lot of cool things. So first of all, are those boxes of vinyl that I see behind you? Oh yeah. There's uh, our friend made like, and there's more in the closet too, a lot more. Oh, that's And there's more in the garage and there's more in the living room. That's sick. So you are a tried and true collector and DJ then. Is that right? Well, some of these are mine, but after I moved in with my husband, like he is a far, far more, um, 
he's like a he's like a real collector. I mean, I just like I like to play. I DJ with vinyl, or when I used to DJ even before the pandemic, I'd kind of cut down the DJing. I would only DJ with vinyl, but he's super like he's a purist. He wants an original pressing. He won't do comps. He won't do reissues. He um, he focuses primarily on forty fives. That's super cool. All yeah. right, and then you, so your mom was uh, a classically trained piano player. Mm-hmm. Did you did you spend time with you learning the classical repertoire yourself? Oh yeah, my my undergraduate degree is a bachelor in, in music and vocal performance, and I studied opera. Wow. Okay, tell us more about that. I mean, I'm I'm very glad I did it. Um, I learned. I can read a score. I can read like a 16, 20 stave score with B flat and E flat instruments. I mean, it'll take me a minute now because I'm a little rusty, but like I can understand that. I can read that. I can read music. I can, I'm not a great sight reader anymore at the piano because I'm out of practice, but I can sit down at the piano and play something. I'm just kind of amazed at how many artists these days cannot sit down at a piano or pick up a guitar and write a song. That's what I was going to say. You can actually do that. And wow, that's huge. That's so... I mean, you know, everyone should do what works for them. But I also feel like no, there's no such thing as a neutral tool. And when I was fooling around more in Ableton, like I realized I was trapped into like four, four measures, counts of four, everything at four, because the tool really behaves that way. And if you're picking up a guitar or picking up a piano, you're like not locked into that. You can do time signature changes. You can cut a measure short. You can cut a verse short. You can do things that those interfaces don't really encourage you to do. You and can I don't, play rubato, yeah. Yeah, you can play rubato, which you can't even do in Ableton. You really can't do that, you know? And I, and I love Ableton, um, but I think it's important to understand that the tool is not neutral. It shapes what you are going to write. I love that. So what's really cool is that people in the music business side of it, right, such as yourself, you are basically uh, a publishing and licensing company mm-hmm. right? uh, that you have a musical background. I think that's that's really important. So that way you understand the artists and the catalogs that you're representing on a deeper level, right? Not just a, from a marketing perspective, but from a musical perspective. Yeah, I mean, I, I try. I hope so. I mean, I'm not. Um, Excuse me. I've written, I've written and co-written some songs that have been synced, but I've kind of taken, I've kind of put the brakes on that because I don't want my artists to feel like they're competing with me. They mm. don't think it's appropriate to like elbow my way into sessions, so I don't really do that anymore. Oh. Um, before the pandemic, like every so often, I'd go write with a friend of mine just kind of for fun. Yeah. But. Um, I wanted to I wanted to write for sync at least a couple times so I understood like well what does it look like when I get a brief like how does it feel to do that what's this experience like so when I'm setting up co-writes I understand what's going to happen at the co-write I love that okay so let's dive right in sync s y n c which is mm-hmm. for synchronization right mm-hmm. those who may not know you know, tell us about sync break it down as if the listeners you know were were not informed and and you're about to inform them. Well, sync is uh, synchronization. It's synchronizing sound to a picture, and the picture can be a promo, a um, a television show, a trailer. It can be any number of things, but really you're, you're synchronizing music to picture. And if you don't own the music, you're synchronizing to your picture, you, get, you need to get the rights to do that. Right. And usually there's two sets of rights. There's the right to the recording and the right to the composition. Thank you. Please expound. The master recording and the composition rights. Right. So like, um, just as an example, uh, uh, Whitney Houston's version, I will always love you. Dolly Parton wrote that song. So if I wanted Whitney Houston's version of that song in the bodyguard, I would need Whitney Houston's permission. Although that probably was a work for hire, but whatever I would need Whitney's Houston's. Well, maybe not. She was a big star, but whatever. I would need Whitney Houston's permission for the recording. And then I would need Dolly Parton's permission for the composition. Right. And let's be clear that when, when, when you say Whitney's and Dolly's permission, obviously you're not going to call Whitney and Dolly on the phone. Uh, you know, by the way, rest in peace, Whitney. We, we, yeah, absolutely. Uh, but you're, you're going to call their representatives. You know, it's, or their publisher their in the case publisher. of Dolly. Thank you. Thank you. So, yeah, please expound on that. for the listeners. So Dolly is 
maybe not the best example because she's a, kind of a powerhouse, but let's say Dolly was, um, let's say, well, okay, so, so Dolly has someone publish her songs. I'm not sure who her publisher is, but let's say it's Warner. You would call Warner Music and say, hey, we want to use I Will Always Love You and The Bodyguard. And Warner is her publisher. Warner is supposed to safeguard her rights. They're supposed to um, collect income for her worldwide. They're supposed to issue licenses, both mechanical licenses and synchronization licenses. And in her case, probably they don't, they probably have to ask permission. So they would contact another, I mean, she probably has a huge team. So they'd contact whoever is on her team and then figure that out. But both Whitney and Dolly are very big stars or Whitney was a really big star. In that case, probably they got paid the same. Mm. But let's say I covered that song. I am not, my recording is not going to be considered as valuable as Dolly's work writing the song. She's way more famous than I probably will ever be. So I will probably get paid less. Right. Well, let's talk about that because as what happens in the sync licensing world is it becomes, uh, it can be a lucrative avenue for musicians to, you know, pursue, especially independent artists. Mm -hmm. And the reason is what you just mentioned, because uh, again, in today's standards or maybe a couple of years ago standards, Imagine Dragons, after they become Imagine Dragons and they blew up, they're going to command a lot, a lot bigger licensing fee. Mm -hmm than before when they were just a little indie band, right? Mm -hmm. However, the little indie bands and little indie artists can still get some decent deals, right? Yeah, they can get some decent deals, absolutely. I mean, I think it's important to be aware of the fact that there, there is a lot of content, but there's also a lot of music and things have changed since, um, I'd say really since Spotify, you're not just competing with the other indie artists of today. You're competing with every indie artist that ever was. Wow. Right? Like I have an artist named uh, Lazy Smoke from the 60s uh -huh. and they're independent. They're not published. They're one stop. Okay. Right? So you're in competition with them. You're in competition with bands from 10 years ago because time and space has really been collapsed. Mm. Okay, now you just used another term, if you don't mind breaking one stop down. And when you, when you say that, exactly what are the... I feel like one stop is, um, can be misunderstood. I mean, one stop means that you control all the rights, all the rights. You control the master, you control the publishing. Now, if you and I got together and write a, wrote a song, aside from the fact that I have a licensing agency, unless I got a piece of paper from you giving me permission to relay approval on your behalf for sync rights or making those, not even really approval, uh, give approval on your behalf. Right. I wouldn't, it wouldn't be one stop. Right. It's really two stop, which is okay. And I also think that there's a fixation on one stop these days. Everything has to be one stop, one stop, one stop, one stop. And I think that um, there's a couple of reasons for that. I think some of it is because we have an influx of newer artists who don't really know or an experience. They don't really know a lot. And one stop is, an easy way to explain to them um, how they need to be marketable. And I think that's fair. Um, and so they often work together. They often are unpublished. They all work together. And so it's just easier. We're one stop, we're one stop, we're one stop. Sometimes they think they are, but they're not because they haven't gotten, they haven't, they'll, they'll show me splits. Like I'm allowed to speak for sync opportunities. And I'm like, well, an opportunity isn't a license, right? So some, but the, the other thing is, I, so sometimes I think they don't really understand. Um, I think sometimes they're afraid. They're like, well, what if there's a publisher? Like the publisher will screw things up. The publisher is a wild card. What if you're with an agency? There is something to that. But like, if you know who you're working with, I think that it can be okay. I mean, you can go on my website and look at tons of placements that I got where there's other publishers involved and it was fine. It was fine. You just have to know, like, who is, who is it? Who is the other party? Right. Who do you contact to clear it? What is that person like? And that's the legwork that you have to do. Mm -hmm. So you do. I mean, you do have to do more legwork if it's not one stop. Right. You do. Right. Um, and the other reason why I think one stop is a, kind of a, something people fixate on is maybe they want all of the commission. Mm. If you're an agency, you want all the commission for generating the opportunity because agencies work on commission. But... And uh, okay, but at the same time, like there's a, there's a writer named Daniel Ellsworth at Terrorbird. And I like to set up my writers with him because he syncs well, he's great to work with. And sometimes Terrorbird generates the opportunity. Sometimes I, you know, sometimes we do. And 
one hand washes the other. Like when I generate the opportunity, then sure, I give up half, I give up in quotes half the commission because they commission on their half. But then when they generate the opportunity, guess what? Like it works the other way. Vice versa, you benefit. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. yeah. The symbiotic relationship, which. Yeah. So it can be nice to have a partner. I do. I think it can be nice to have a partner and have things to stop if you know that the other agency is going to pull their weight. Right. Yeah. Especially right if you have a trusted relationship there, mm -hmm. which musicians are used to collaborating. You know, we thrive on collaborations, right? Mm -hmm. so, so you're taking that that collaborative experience mindset and applying it on on the business side as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is brilliant in my opinion. Uh, I always think of bands back in the day, whether it's the Beatles or Earth, Wind & Fire, imagine if it was just one person doing all the writing and playing. It would not mm -hmm. be what it is today, right? Right, <laughs> right. They all, and they all had teams, too, that would push out their music and stuff. That's right. Okay, so rewinding a little bit, you mentioned earlier you were in, your, in, in some punk bands and stuff, mm -hmm. and you were playing keys, and you're like, man, I don't even know if I knew what a PRO was. You know? I don't think I did. I really don't. <laughs> I, I love that. And I, first of all, I love the, the vulnerability to admit that. I don't care what stage you are in your career. So if there's anybody listening who doesn't know, it's okay. You know, the point is, now you know, we're going to point you in the right direction to go do some research. Mm -hmm. um, I hear a lot of people refer to it as a pro. Oh, what's your pro? Well, sure, you could say that, but it's really a PR. PRO, yeah. Performing rights organization. <laughs> so please, you know, expound on that for us. So when you write a song, um, let's say, well, I wrote a song um, and I needed to register it on my PRO. I am CSAC. There's they're called, it's a performance rights organization and they're supposed to help you collect money and they're supposed to also serve as proof of ownership of the song. So I wrote a song with my friend Ethan, and I went to CSAC. He is ASCAP. He went to ASCAP, and we each registered our respective portions of the song. So first, it's important to note that if you're ASCAP, BMI, or CSAC, you can all collaborate together, and it's okay. Yeah. I could collaborate with a SOCAN writer, SOCAN being from Canada or with SAIE, who's Spanish, or with, with whoever. It doesn't matter. Um, and then you register the song and you're like, why would I, why would I do that? Well, because when your song, when your song, not your recording, your song plays on television, you get, you get more money later. Pretty cool, right? It's your back end. Yeah. It takes a while, six to six months to a year later, you get money from those uses. Now you do get money from Netflix, uh, from Spotify, but it's really very little. And that's something that really does need to change. Um, for I think my I think my Spotify like I, you know I'm a publisher so I get these I get these statements that are so long they crash my computer because it's got like my Excel kept crashing last time and I was like what is going on because it was I think thirty thousand rows long my publisher statement but like I had one writer who had a thirty thousand row statement from all the Spotify stuff and it was like one hundred and fifty bucks like you barely get anything off Spotify it's it's something something's really got to be done about that or about like or Hulu, like you really don't get very much backend money from those services. Right, right, right. So, okay, um, first I want to explain the difference, that, uh, the concept that countries have their own PROs, right? Mm -hmm. so you mentioned SOCAN from Canada and, you know, the Spanish. There's actually, watch, there's probably hundreds of PROs around the world, right? Um, yeah, few. probably. I mean, there's PRS in the UK, there's an Italian one whose name I forget. Yeah, that's a the one I can't remember. Sassem is French. Yeah, okay. The Africans, uh, African countries, they're, I work with an African label and I believe there are some African PROs, but they're working on kind of trying to modernize their PRO stuff. Oh, Australia has their own PRO. There you go. There you go. You know? So no matter where you live, it's important that you get signed up with one, right? Yep. I just had a question the other day. I was doing a webinar for the career musician, and we were talking about building your catalog. And one of the composers asked, uh, if I register my song with a PRO, with my PRO, do I have to apply for a copyright? You really should, but I'm not going to sit here and tell you with a straight face that everybody does. You really should. Right. Because, you know, he brought up the point. He's like, well, look, if I have 200 songs or cues in my catalog... That's expensive if I have No, to. I think you could just call them an album and apply for it all at once, though, can't you? A work, a body of work. Yeah, a body of work and do it all at once. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you really should. You should. You should, you should at the end of the day, but... You a lot of people don't. I mean, I think that... I mean, 
a prop, an IP lawyer would really be able to say for sure if I'm right, but I believe there's an implied copyright when you create it. Right. I don't think the piece of paper has a magical power that not having the piece of, I mean, it's, it's, it's good to have it, but like, yeah. Well, I'll give you an example. I had a, um, I had a situation where there was some confusion over whether or not a song I wrote was a work for hire or not. Mm. I didn't, I didn't register the song. I know very bad. And I just asked the company to produce evidence. I was like, can you show me where you, where I signed anything saying that it was work for hire? And they could not, I think it was an honest mistake. So that was cool. I think it was, I was like, you know, I, I don't have this as a work for hire. Can you show me where I signed something? And not only that, here are screenshots of my registering it in my name. Here's a license from before. Uh, where it was signed. Yeah, you caught them. You caught them in their own. I, I do think it was an honest mistake. Um, I think it was um, someone new whose records, I really do think it was an honest mistake. Okay. But it wasn't, they weren't like, you don't have a copyright. Gotcha. Right? Uh, like, yeah. I mean, and even, if, even if it was not an honest mistake, me not having that copyright registration really wouldn't have been dispositive. Right. Okay. Okay. Now, break that down for us, the work for hire, because, boy, that, that seems to be a misunderstood, misunderstood term oftentimes. When you're working in a work for hire basis, that entity or person or organization is really purchasing all your rights to those songs. You can still register. You still generally get credit as the writer. Like on the PRO, you will have written it. They generally extend that courtesy. But let's say Chase Bank is asking you to do a work for hire. You will be the writer. Chase Bank often will be the publisher. And they will own the master. Right. Now, does that mean as a, as a writer, as a composer, are you going to get back-end royalties on that work for hire? On your writer's side. Only on the writer's side. Right. And mm -hmm. that's the other thing that I think everybody really needs to understand. There's two sides of the pie mm -hmm. you know uh how again learning all this obviously it's been years since you've learned it but how do you break it down for you know for easy ingestion usually i draw a circle and then i um, i do the same thing yeah <laughs> um basically you'll get two checks one if you're ascap you look at it as two checks one check for your writer and one side for your publisher and it's to protect it's really to protect you so like let's say you have a publisher and you have a check for $100 and your publisher gives you a check for 80, then you know your publisher is charging you 20%. That's right. That's what, right. So it, it's to show you how much of your earnings that your publisher is taking from you. Uh, now, okay, let's take that information and translate it to Sweet on Top. Mm -hmm. When you decided to open your own publishing company, Sweet on Top, mm -hmm. What was the you know, impetus there? Did, were you just getting so many deals? You're like, oh, shoot, I better start you know, working deals in that I can collect my own publishing or how, how did that all? That's part of it. The other part is like when I was in my old agency, we would, um, we would really grow with artists. We would give them briefs. We would uh, work with them to become more syncable. That's what they wanted. And then they'd get syncs and then like Cobalt would sign them. Right. And I'd be like, I'm really happy for the artist, but now I just did A&R for Cobalt. And that's not, that's not cool. <laughs> that's <laughs> so I'm like, so then I was like, Okay, so that's not cool. So then I was like, well, I've, if we're going to be working with artists to help them, if we're going to be growing with them, then we just, it's only fair that we publish them. So we do have a couple different deals. We have one deal where if it's like, if we send you a brief, we publish that song, which I think is fair. If we put you together and introduce you to a writer and you guys write stuff, we publish the first few songs that come out of your collaboration, which I again think is fair you guys could go off into the sunset and be the next Chinachap or the next Matrix and or the next Lennon McCartney. And I'd hope to work together, but you'd have no obligation to do so. We just take the first few songs. And then if someone wants like, hey, I have an album, we work the album, then we'll publish the album. I mean, if someone, we do have full catalog deals, but right. no one needs to do that. We have other options for you. Okay. Okay. Wow. That's awesome. Tell us more about Sweet on Top. Um, well, we founded it in, well, we, we found, I filed the corporate paperwork and everything in late 2017, but we opened it in early 2018. Um, and we, I mean, we've grown a lot. We represent, let me look at my very aggressive email signature so I can tell you what we represent. I like that. <laughs> we have quite a few vintage labels, which I'm really proud of. Like Ace Records is one of the, I, I'm going to say one of the best vintage labels in the world. 
um, their British label. We've got um, another vintage label called uh, Jackpot. We just signed Hindsight Records. We have a ton of Latin, actually, and Latin electronic. Uh, we do have some talented writers. We have a Scottish label called Holy Smokes Record. We just signed Levitation Records out of Austin, who I really love, MRC, which is um, Authentic Vintage African. I mean, I think the hardest part of starting Sweet on Top was you want searches because you need placements to sign people. But then if you like, it's just like this chicken and egg thing. Yes. So I had to sign people that I, that trusted me and then be like, okay, wait there, just wait, I'm going to go get searches now and then go get the searches. So that to me, that was the hardest part. Well, I, like, I, well, how the hell do you do it? Because it, it's, it seems like a, a mind boggling, you know, task. Well, let me tell you, I have a PhD from UCLA and this was harder. Wow. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Eric, put on the brakes. A PhD from UCLA. You, how did yeah. you skip over that? Oh, I mean, uh, when I was, uh, when I stopped working for the bank, I was like, I was still playing in bands. I was still promoting. I was still doing music stuff. And I was, I think I was doing some music journalism and I was like, I still didn't understand like how I would make a living in the music industry. I just didn't see how I would get a foothold. Um, so I went back to school and I went to UCLA for my PhD in philosophy. And then it was while I was there working. I mean, you're not supposed to work off campus when you have a, when you're getting a, a doctorate, but um, the stipend just wasn't enough. And my committee was certainly not going to pay any student loans I took out. So I chose to work off campus and my work was often in the music industry, DJing, um, freelance journalism, wow. you know, uh, working for an events production company, and that's kind of how, that's how I transitioned in, out of academia into music industry stuff. Wow. Okay. I love how you just said that. You you're like, yeah, this is harder than than studying for my PhD. Opening um, the company absolutely was harder than my PhD. Absolutely. Wow. Okay. And you were I'm sorry, you were working for another house, another licensing house before you opened this. Oh yeah, I wouldn't recommend doing this because like, I mean, I work, we work with the biggest companies on the planet. We work with Amazon, Apple, Universal Music, like AT&T, Time Warner slash HBO. Like these are the biggest companies on the planet. Right. You cannot ask for forgiveness instead of permission. Uh, you will get fucked over. Excuse my language. Okay. It, it, it will be a bad, like you, you, you've got to know what you are doing. Yeah, you'll get burned and you'll get blacklisted. You never work again, right? You'll never get the job, the calls. Unfortunately, I, I kind of wish it worked that way sometimes because you do see people rise to the top who ah. I, I wonder if their relationships are kind of, I mean, relationships are really important. Yeah, um, But I'll put it this way. Probably it'll be okay, but then it's okay until it's not. And that's kind of, I can't really talk about the specific situations oh, that I've seen happen, but like I've, what, from what I've seen, you know what, probably it's okay, but it'll be okay until it's not. If you yeah. don't run a tight ship. You're shooting yourself in the foot, basically. Like you really, I mean, and you do have to know me. This is really, honestly, this is really a sales job. It is. Um, it's a sales job, but you ha like any sales job, you have to know your product and my product is music. So I have to know my catalog. I have to know, what my supervisors will need. I have to know my clients, but it, it is a sales job. And it's also um, a law job because I read, I read licenses. I negotiate licenses. It's all legal stuff. Um, license agreements are pretty easy. If I was doing sync only agreements with artists, those are easy, but like publishing agreements are, are a little challenging. I do have to lo loop in my lawyer sometimes and ask him for help with publishing agreements. Sure. Um, you have to have a lot of skill sets to do this. You have to be able to negotiate. Right. Um, you have to also deal with artists <laughs> who are sometimes I think they, I mean, they, some of them have been burnt by bad deals. So sometimes I think they're, they are fearful, but they don't know what they're fearful of. So you have to, I mean, some of them don't know. Some of the labels I've signed have never worked in sync. I mean, I just signed MoFunk. I love this label so much, but they don't really have a lot of experience with sync. Right. So you have to be able to explain things to people who, while very talented and extremely smart, just don't have experience in this area. Right, right. I'll never forget my first uh, sync deal um, years ago in the early 2000s. 
<laughs> with, with the company, I can't remember the name of the company. Anyway, I remember calling my representative uh, or calling or emailing and I would say, hey, uh, any bites yet? <laughs> and he just got back to me. He's like, well, these things take time. And I'm like, okay, well, how much time? <laughs> A lot of time. I was really. so naive. I just, you know, I was asking all the questions. No, they take a lot of time. I mean, that's the other thing is that it can be lucrative. It can be, but I think it's also important to like realize that there's a lot of content out there and that includes music. So, um, it, okay, I'll give you an example. Someone just reached out to me for a quote request for something I pitched in, I think, June of 2018. Wow. Yeah. They just wanted a quote. After, after two years, two and a half years. Wow. Mm -hmm. Look at that. So, uh, you know, I always say, again, one of the premises here, the career musician is about the long game. I feel mm -hmm. if you're in music for a living, it's not a, it's not a conscious choice. We were chosen. We were chosen for this. We don't choose to go into it because everybody knows it's hellacious. It's, you know, it's, it's mind boggling to try to make a living, as you say. Mm -hmm. How does an artist or a band play the long game in sync licensing effectively? I would say there's a lot of people making music for sync right now. There's kind of, I almost, almost want to say there's a bubble of people making music for sync. Yeah. Um, so if you're going to be making sync songs, you better be a really, really, really good at it because the day when you could just clap and whistle over a ukulele a little bit and get $50,000, like those are gone. Right. So you better be really good at that. Um, if you're making what I call sync music. And if you're not making sync music, you can still make music and get synced, but I would make sure you have a strong artist identity. Um, and you can, you can still have that strong artist identity and write sync friendly songs. You really can. I love that. I, it's, it's a, it's a very, uh, it's a delicate balance, but it can be done. I agree. Yeah. Absolutely. And like the, when I was, I worked on the coordinator side for a little bit, like for a supervisor right before the agency opened and there, there was some overlap there. And I still sometimes help her out if she's super slammed. They listen to like a thousand songs a day. Mm. Mm. So like, you've got to think, how are you going to, and really most of them are very, very good. So like, you can't be in that, what I call the mushy middle 80%. Like you can't be in that 80%. You've got to stand out somehow and you can stand you got to stand out you got to let your personality like what makes this song yours why do they need your swagger song versus someone else's because right. they all sound the same honestly like you got to make your stand out i'm christina benson from sweet on top and you're listening to career musician help us continue to provide you with new and engaging content by getting our ratings up Please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Go behind the scenes with host Nomad to gain inside knowledge of entertainment business from the world's leading musicians, artists, producers, managers, and more. I love it. I love it. You said a couple things. Um, <laughs> I do remember the whole movement of the ukulele hand clap era where that's all you heard. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Talk about that. What do you, you know? What are your thoughts on that? Uh, obviously, you see trends that shift and, and move, and they, you know, they come and go. Right now, okay. There was a while when I was getting Uptown Funk like a million times a day. Mm. Uh, what is it now? I would say those, like those types of uh, Uptown Funk songs, are very. Um, they're kind of timeless. If you can do that, like if you're really good at that and that's your thing and you're good at it, then I would then stick with it. But it's right now, actually, it's hard for me to put my finger on a specific sound. It's really more about the lyrics. Mm. Yeah. And then also there was a, a moment where everybody was requesting dark covers, quote unquote. Oh, geez, those are still going. I mean, <laughs> those are still going. But those are tough to land. I'm not going to say, like, yeah. yes, have independent artists landed dark cover deals totally but um often trailer houses will like they want they want for example Dua Lipa doing a dark cover right they they often want to arrange the cover with someone famous because they're trying to sell a movie right that people spent tens of million dollars to make and so I mean like I have friends at trailer houses with extremely 
they have good taste in music and they like weird, obscure stuff and they, they want to put it in trailers. And there is a time for that. But sometimes with these big blockbusters, like no one wants to take a chance. They want something that like everyone likes, everyone knows. It's got to be the sure bet, right? I mean, that's... They want a sure bet. And I, I'm generalizing here, just big disclaimer. This is a generalization. It is generally true, which means there are exceptions. But that's part of the fabric of what Hollywood is built on. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you just... We could talk about that for days with actors, right? So they, they go for the sure thing. Yeah. yeah, I mean, also, before the before the pandemic, when, like, friends of mine from the indie bands and stuff that I used to play in and, and the bands I go see express interest in sync and want to write for sync the first thing i tell them to do is like go to the mall mm. and i tell them not not like century city like go to the mall in orange county i'm from orange county so it's okay <laughs> go to the mall in orange county or the valley and i live in the valley now yeah. go to the mall in orange county or the valley or better yet riverside and just go sit in the food court and like look at these look at who's here look at what they're buying look at like just sort of Drink in the atmosphere because that is who you are making music for. You're not making music for Intellect. the people at the Echo on a Monday night. Like that's not who your audience is here. You're not making music for people who go to the Smell. That's not who that. That's not who the audience is. I, I love that. That's so true. And it's an interesting dichotomy. You, if you are a true, if you're a tried and true artist to the core, and you do have that intellectual side and that philosophical side. It's, this can be a this this could be a little bit bit of a wrestling match within your own, you know. I mean, I have a friend. He's like an artist to the core, and he's he can he can be so good at sync songs because his personality, like his songs, are gonna stand out. Like his personality is in those songs; they're gonna stand out. But I really gotta watch his lyrics because he'll try really hard, but there's just always something weird in there. But I mean, so. I would say like a great collaboration for sync is to find like a weird artist type who wants to do this and put them with like a straight down the middle sync person, because you'll get that like sync friendly lyrics, the sync friendly production, but with that kind of like twist, you know, that's, that's beautiful. That's, that's incredible. I love that. Hey, do you remember the, when, uh, I always say this, but maybe you'll disagree. I don't know. Do you remember when music supervisors became the new rock stars? Oh, actually, there's a, a young woman at USC who is um, writing her dissertation on that. She interviewed me for her dissertation. Okay, good. So I'm, I'm glad I'm not alone. Yeah. So talk about that. You know, boy, that was a that was an interesting turn in the industry, wasn't it? I mean, I feel like I feel like I forget what her her thesis is. I feel like she thinks. I think she's arguing that like when labels, when the, like the labels, labels got very fragmented due to Spotify. Yeah. Like there's, there is a, the gatekeeper now is the algorithm in Spotify. Like that does have a, a gatekeeping function, but that's a lot less tangible than the gatekeeping function that labels used to provide. And like, obviously there are labels in Instagram, but the branding of that is a lot less identifiable. So supervisors provide that gatekeeping and sort of branding function that I think that's what she's arguing. I have to look back at what we talked about. Okay. I mean, that, that, I think that was her argument. I think it's a good argument that they provide like a, almost like a gatekeeping function. Right. Uh, well, they're, they're, it's like they're replacing A&R. Yeah. Right. I mean, they are A&R. They're, they're embodying that. Yes. Yes. They're, I mean, they're really like almost like unpaid A&R for labels because like, I love Lizzo, but if you told me that some of her songs were written for Sync, I would totally believe you. Mm. I mean, doesn't it sound, yeah. I mean, to me, it sounds yeah. like it was written for Sync, and like Sync is more and more a consideration for labels. Right. I mean, I have a band that I rep that they were, they're a Sync band. They're formed to write for Sync, and they've gotten so successful for Sync that they're now getting scouted by major labels who want to turn them into a real band. Wow. So that's the reverse uh, uh, progression. Mm -hmm. That Wow. That's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. All right. So how do you, uh, well, let's see. You are a sync licensing company and you mm -hmm. represent all these artists, bands, catalogs, and, and, and labels. And writers. Uh-huh. Writers, because of, especially with the publishing side. Mm -hmm. All of these independent artists want to get their songs placed. What do you tell them? You know, because let's face it, trying to get your music on the desk of a supervisor 
is almost virtually impossible these days. Like, no, it's not impossible. I do it. I mean, I do it every day. It's my job. But like, no, but you do it as yeah. a, as a company. But I'm saying for the independent artist. So, what do you recommend? You know, in independent artists absolutely need to find a bona fide sync agency or license, sync agency or publisher. Right. And I don't mean like their friend who's an artist who yeah. is now an agency because they don't want to pay commission anymore. I don't mean like cold emailing supervisors. I mean like an actual supervising, an actual agency. That's right. That's right. And I think that's very important for people to hear uh, because there's, there's so many, there's so much content out there. Like you said, it's surplus, right? The market is oversaturated. And really, not only that, like this, this is, Music, to a large extent, is fungible. Mm. I mean, can you replace Beyonce with Sabbath? No. But can you replace Sabbath with ACDC or Maiden? Rat? Maybe. Right. So, I mean, it's fungible, especially at the indie artist level. Like, if you, okay, maybe you can't really replace Black Sabbath with Rat because Iron Man has that sound and you want Iron Man. But if you're an indie artist and nobody knows who you are, like. Totally replaceable. You are replaceable. <laughs> I love that. I always used to say that even on a gig, like, I, I don't know how much you know about me, but I was the music director for Babyface for, for 10 years. Mm -hmm. And I used to preach that to the band all the time because I was constantly, you know, vetting new band members and putting together new, new iterations of the band based on what the artist wanted. Okay, and that would be my first thing. Listen, I'm so glad you're here. We're excited to have you. But just know at the end of the day, you are replaceable. Oh, by the way, I'm speaking to myself because yeah. I'm replaceable. We, yeah, I mean, even ba Babyface is far less replaceable. Exactly, because he has a sound, an identity. Yeah, Yeah, but like there's a point. I mean, do supervisors get everything they want all the time? No, and they have to find a way to replace Dua Lipa. They have to find a replace. Re I mean, Lizzo and they they do it it's not like they're like well I guess we can't air this show now because we can't get Lizzo like they replace it right right hell no the, the show must go on regardless mm -hmm. wow this has been great so okay do you have if you could if you don't mind could you give us a a, a peer into the day in the life of Christina Benson and Sweet? you know what is your you obviously you have some kind of a schedule or something how do you juggle all this it just seems like a lot so I wake up, I mean, I have a, a, I'm married to someone who helps me and has to help me. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> I have that going for me. Um, but I usually wake up early because I have a lot of British clients and I, I don't need to talk to them every day, but I talk to them a lot. So I'll usually wake up at like seven and then I have this bad habit of looking at my emails on my phone in bed before I'm ready to get up. And then I'll usually see something and forget about it until like way later, which I shouldn't do. So I'll just kind of stare at my emails and my phone and then finally I'll get up. And then usually immediately I'll email the British people. Right. Um, there'll be a quote request. There'll be, um, do you have the wave for this? Uh, hey, I saw on your Instagram that you have an album coming out soon. Do you want to send it to me now so I can push it? Like I'll just try to check in with British people. Very cool. Then um, I look at trade magazines, just sort of while I'm drinking coffee and seeing what shows are coming, like what's been greenlit. Okay. Um, then I'll usually have searches from the day before that I have to do, mm. you know, so I'll do my searches. I will. And the days, days are really fluid. I mean, yeah. some days I'll have lots of searches. Some days I'll have fewer searches. Some days, um, I'll be able to, my husband is extremely good at inputting our um, vintage catalog. I really rely on him for that. Nice. He's great on our vintage searches, but the contemporary stuff I usually do. So if there's, um, if there's contemporary stuff to intake, I do. I'll usually have, I try to have calls with supervisors, like I used to do meetings, but now Zoom meetings with supervisors. Yeah. Before this huge spike in virus stuff, I would try to do distance walks with supervisors. So I might do that. Um, it's, it's pretty, pretty fluid. Uh, distance walks? Well, yeah, because, you know, it's a pandemic. Yeah, so I would. Fun, yeah. I'll do like, well, let's do a distance walk in Griffith Park. Oh, that's cool. Why not? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, and then it gives you, you know, it, it gives you a whole nother set of stimuli to be, you know, intrigued with being outside, right? Usually they want to stroll, but I have one supervisor who's like, okay. And she was like, let's, like, we hiked all the way to the Griffith Observatory. It was really hard. So it was good, though. Wow. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. 
Hey, do you have a mantra that you've relied on, you know, over time when things, you know, can get pretty hectic? No. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Okay. No. No. But you have but you have a very good handle on how to how to how to you know how to frame all of this, okay? You have it framed very well just from this conversation. Do you find that your background in philosophy helps you at all? Or do you feel like you tap into that at all? Or oh, no, my PhD is totally useless. <laughs> I mean, okay, here's where it's not useless. I mean, to do a dissertation, I had to like, I had to interview 100 people. I had to read, oh my God, I had to read so many books. I had to um, learn how to speak Arabic which I've forgotten how to do. Oh, and Persian, which sadly I've forgotten. I really regret letting my Persian go, but whatever. Um, I had to do, I had to learn how to manage projects, um, a project for a long period of time while also like a long-term project while at the same time teaching undergraduates mm -hmm. and dealing with them, which helps me with artists, dealing with them. And, you know, some of them were having tough times. Some of them needed more attention than others. So that's, I guess, where the PhD helped me is with project management and with, um, with dealing with the artists. Also, I was an artist. So, I mean, there's that. Uh, well, you still are an artist. Like once an artist, always an artist, in my opinion. <laughs> I was, I feel like I was more like a musician than an artist, you know? Okay. Well, that makes sense. Um, and then, uh, the other thing actually that's helped me the most is my sales background. Because when I said I worked for a bank, I was really a loan officer. So I was pushing loans. Wow. Um, that's really what's helped me the most is my sales background. Really? You know, mm -hmm. I, that's so cool to know because uh, over, boy, over the past 10 years or so, I've realized being a, a professional musician artist these days is all about marketing. It's this is a sales job. So this is, what it is. is a sales job. Yeah. 100%. And so if you're an artist, that's why I say you really need to get a licensing agent or a publisher because yes. you should not be in sales as an artist. You should be an artist. An artist should not be, in, I mean, like I, I, you should, you need to maintain your persona as an artist. You need to be focusing. I mean, like I have, uh, I actually have a very, very talented top liner who is, he's really proactive about um, getting opportunities, which is great. But then Sometimes he'll be like, okay, I'm going to email this guy, this guy, and this guy. And I'll be like, dude, what are you doing? Like, I email those people all day. Do you want to switch? Like, do you want me to sing the songs and you do the emails? We can, but I think we'll be a lot more successful if you leave me the emails. Right. And you do the songs. Right. That makes perfect sense. That makes perfect sense. Um, but also, like you said, I think all of, the, all of your background helps you in dealing with artists. Because let's face it, artists are, you know a lot emotions on the sleeve, the heart on the sleeve, you know, mm -hmm. it could be a very, uh, <laughs> challenging aspect of the job. No. Yeah. I mean, well, I don't know. I mean, the only, have I ever had a challenge? Like, a really, I don't think so. Like my old agency, she used to get really nervous about, I think she had a bad experience with artists once she used to get a little nervous about it, but like, I don't know, I've been in bands my whole life. It's fine. I just think that I, a lot of the artists that I deal with, not a lot, some of the artists, that need the most attention have had experiences where they have been burned and they worry about it, which is understandable. That makes sense. That makes sense. How do you define success? I mean, look, uh, from the outside, I view you as extremely successful. Love how you started your own company, that proactive initiative. How do you define success? Um, how do I define success? I guess it just sort of depends on the day. Like some days I feel really successful, like really successful. I'm like, damn, like I'm doing really good. And then some days I'm like, oh my God, like that show is on the air and I don't have a song in it. I can't believe it. Like it just really depends on what day you catch me. Oh, I'm so glad you said that. When Narcos came out, I felt like they were putting a stake through my heart. I'm like, how can I not have a song in the worst is if it's like my friend supervising it and I'll be like, I'll be like having lunch with them and I'll be looking at them and I'll be thinking, what the fuck, dude? What? Yeah. What, <laughs> what the fuck is, like, you know, I have an electronic catalog. No, let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. Do you voice that? What do you do in those circumstances? Depends on the relationship, right? It really depends on the relationship. Um, yeah. <laughs> it really depends on the relationship. Uh, 
usually I don't, it's a hard, it just depends on the relationship. No. Yeah. You can't be like, it's, I, I feel uncomfortable being like, I mean, that already happened. If it's on TV, it already happened. And trying to make someone feel bad for, and I don't, I don't know. I wasn't there. Like when I was a supervisor, sometimes we had no control. Sometimes the director, I mean, I wasn't a supervisor to be clear. I was a coordinator, but sometimes we had no control. The director would be like, you will be putting this in the ads. That was it. So I, I just don't know. Gotcha. Uh, what I do try to do is then I'll be more proactive. I'll be like, well, if she couldn't come to me or felt like she, or felt like I didn't have what she needed, why is that? How can I be better about communicating that I'll, I'll have something she needs or he needs? Yeah. Ha- be, being able to look down the, the trail further, right? Mm-hmm. In advance. Yeah. Right. Have you had uh, well, I'm sure you had a pinch yourself moment. Perhaps there's many, but is there one that stands out where you're just like, Oh wow. I can't believe that happened. That was super cool. Well, at my old agency, um, I worked with, um, I was the agent who worked with the violent femmes yeah. and I put together a show that they, like they played an agency show case that I put together. Like, I think, I think they routed their tour around the showcase and I put it together with uh, Susan from Hum. She worked at Hum at the time and she emailed me. She was like, do you think they'd do it? And I was like, I don't know. It never hurts to ask. That's cool. So that was super cool. And then what else? Uh, I mean, just when I watch TV and like, there's a song that I put on there, like, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Or, like if I see a film and there's credits and I'm like, that's my company, like, that's still pretty cool. That's gotta be awesome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, you know, first of all, Christina, so much beautiful information here. Thank you. Um, but you know, as we come near to a close words of wisdom and, or <laughs> advice on how, uh, an independent artist can reach out to, to, to agencies like yourself? Um, I would, I would do a little bit of research and I would look at agencies and see, a, well, I mean, first of all, I would, I would be like, I first think we should take a step back and be like, what I think artists really need to ask themselves what they want. Um, do you want to be a sync artist? Do you want to be an artist who writes for sync? Do you want to be an artist and that's what you want? And if you get some syncs, that's okay. Like what, what do you want? Um, I think that's an important sort of conversation to have for yourself with yourself because um, being an artist who writes for sync, being an artist who syncs, being a sync writer, like these are all very different things and being real honest with yourself about what you want and what you are will help you. Um, I think it's also important to be realistic. There are a lot of people, there are a lot of people making a lot of money off sync right now. There are, but I think there's also a lot of people making a lot of money off what I call, um, I call it pan selling because the people in the gold rush who made the most money weren't the people panning for gold. It was the people selling them the pans. So I would say beware of pan selling. There are some ethical pan sellers out there who do teach a lot of good stuff. They teach you, um, they teach you how to write for sync. They teach you about protecting your rights. But I would be wary. Um, I would just think carefully about like who you're giving your money to and what they're promising. I love that you mentioned that. Um, those pan sellers <laughs> <laughs> who might be asking for some hefty bread up front. Uh, I always recommend to steer clear of them. Like I've had an, an, an instance where somebody said, look, if you pay me 1500 bucks, I'll shop your catalog for three months. Ugh. I would put that in a different category than pan selling. I mean, there are people like the norm in agencies, like in, in licensing agencies is to work on commission. Um, we can talk about whether that's fair, like PR companies don't work on permission on commission. Maybe that's fair. Maybe that's not, that is a norm. And there are agencies who do work on, um, on a, what's it called on a big new contract them by the month. Right. Some do. And there's some reputable companies that do. I would just ask, I would just ask questions about if it's recoupable to me, pan selling is more like, I will teach you how to write for sync. And if I like the songs that you sync, then I will publish it or something like that. Cause then you're paying someone to publish your songs. Right. Right. That makes perfect sense. Perfect sense. To me, to me, that's the pan selling. The pan selling to me isn't like I will pitch your songs on, on a um, contract basis because I do know people 
I do know of ethical and, um, and, you know, good people who do that. Although to be clear, that is not the norm. It is a commission, primarily commission. Right. Okay. Perfect. Like I said, this has been very informative and, you know, listeners out there, you can go to sweetontop.com and find all of Christina's information right there. Um, Mm -hmm. Your socials, is there anything you want, anything else you want to mention? Um, I would just say also when you're reaching out to an agency, be clear about your rights. Be like, hey, I have the master. I have the publishing. This is an album. The other thing is that, um, like in my old agency, we wouldn't take music if it had been released. Okay. Um, I'm a little bit more flexible about that because my catalog, I mean, this agency had been in business for 10 years. They had a deeper catalog and could, they could look for ways to exclude. Also, if someone has an amazing project, I mean, that's it. To be clear, once a song is released for the purposes of sync, you do have sort of like a ticking clock on it. Uh, when I get searches for TV, for example, they want songs that are new. And unfortunately, new in 2020 means released in the last six months. Ah, wow. Interesting. So, so, okay. Yeah, that could be a delicate balance too then, uh, figuring out releases for all of the different artists that you're working with. I mean, they're supposed to tell me. <laughs> <laughs> they're supposed to tell me when they release their songs. So. Call me in, or shoot me an email. Hey, we're doing this. Yeah, okay. The other thing is to think about, um, there are a lot, of, a lot of artists who want non-exclusive deals only, which we used to do. We're getting away from that now. Um, I would think about like, if you don't trust someone to, I mean, do you trust someone to work your music or don't you? If you do, Mm. then why don't you want to work with them exclusively? Um, Yes. The other thing is, right. The other thing is it just was creating too many problems. Like someone would get um, someone else, someone would have an agency that got them in a, a car commercial and the car commercial would now be exclusive in the automotive category. And then they'd forget to tell us and then we'd get them a car ad, but then they couldn't do it because of this thing they forgot to tell us. And I'm just like, I can't, I can't deal with this. Wow. But in essence, that is the definition of an agent. You typically work with one agent and you're exclusive. And that's your that's what an agency is. Or the other thing that would happen is that um, an artist would say, you know what, I'm going to move these songs to exclusive. And I'd be like, well, you signed a deal with me with a three-year term. And like, I don't want to be... I don't want to be unfriendly to artists, mm-hmm. but a deal is a deal. And you sign a deal, and that's the deal. So, like, oh, it's right. that's not happening too much. And I'm like, I just, this is, I just, we're not. And not only that, then we move to now, if it's a, if it's a single artist, if you're not on a, if, if we're taking a whole label, then we'll do sync only. But otherwise, if you're an artist, we've got a, we've got a, admin your publishing on a release because then we avoid situations where like it's a big magical surprise that you got something that we can't pitch you for now and we didn't hear about it right. or we're, it's just it's better because we work closer together i can send you briefs i can help you develop your writing for sync or not for sync i can pair you with top liners i mean i feel like we can be more hands-on together i love that i love that look you're drawing a line in the sand you're, you're setting the benchmark and in essence you're teaching the artists that work with you, how the business works. And I think that's a good thing. Like, like I said, I think there's not enough musicians and artists who understand how it works. Well, this is how it works. I love it. Yeah, I mean, like you sign it. I mean, I do try to be cool when people, if, so, if I haven't been pitching the song that much and someone wants to pull it, and this, by the way, this is all stuff that's grandfathered in. We no longer do not exclusive. But if someone asks me like, hey, you know what, I'm pulling the song, it's now going to be exclusive with someone else. If we haven't really pitched it a lot, then you know, we'll figure something out. But if it's something I've been pitching a ton, like you signed a deal and that deal says I could keep pitching it. So I don't know what we're going to, you know, but uh, anyway, yes, at at some point you, it's, it's, um, you gotta, you gotta draw a line. You gotta be, a deal's a deal. I remember when I was at my old agency, one of the people I work with, she's like, I swear in music industry, people think that contracts are just decoration. (laughs) What is this wallpaper? (laughs) You can make origami out of your contracts. Yeah, I'm like, it's not origami, you guys. <laughs> it's a PDF, first of all. Oh, that is hilarious. I love that. Yeah. Wow. Well, there's so many, there's so many of those in the music business. How about, you know, I, you know, people just don't respond. Like, well, how- oh, yeah, that's the thing. Prepare yourself for lots of disappointment. If you want to do this. 
Ah, oh, right? Yeah, what, did, what happened the other day? I was like, I, was, I emailed somebody about something. It was like my friend and they didn't, what was it? It was something, I emailed someone and they didn't get back to me about something. And I was like, but this is my friend. Why are they doing that? My husband goes, aren't you used to people shitting all over you by now? <laughs> it was like, well, not that much. Not those people. Not, not that particular person. Not that guy, other people. I love it. As, you know, as a New Yorker, I always give my friends a hard time. Like, what's the matter? The phone don't work for you, huh? Yeah, exactly. So just, you know, and, and to be clear, like we get, I get so many emails every day. When I was a supervisor on the supervisor side, it was 10 times as many emails. So if people don't get back to you, it's just like, there's a point where you just can't get back to everybody, unfortunately. That's a good question. If you, if you don't mind real quick, how much is too much when it comes to follow up and, and, you know, I always, I, I kind of try to adhere to the three strikes rule. Like if you reached out three times, and you're not getting anything, then, then lay off the gas. I mean, what do you think? What's your. Uh, I mean, that sounds like a good rule. I would say it's more frequency. Like don't reach out to someone every day, but like, Hey, every month you might do. I mean, you just don't know. Like yeah. there, there's an artist who reached out to me the fourth time and the first three times I didn't it's not like I had a problem or didn't want, I like was inundated with emails or I looked at it on my phone where I was half asleep or I didn't know. I would just say, think about the frequency. Like, are you bugging crap out of this person every day? Maybe don't do that. That's smart. Yeah. yeah. That's absolutely smart. Are you ready for some rapid fire? Okay. Let's do some rapid fire. All right. Here we go. Favorite decade of music. Sixties. Last concert you attended, not worked. You just attended. Oh God. I think that was my, well, they're my friend, but I also rep their band. So it's kind of work and play. I think it was my, fr- I think the last concert I went to was my friend's band, Uzel's, I think, before all this happened. Ah, okay. Your friends would say you are? Smart-ish. Ah. Probably smart. Yeah. yeah, I agree with that. H- hidden talents. Um, hidden talents? Uh, well, I have a bird and I'm the only person whose finger he'll step on. So my friends say I'm a bird with a bird wizard. That's right. Bird, a bird wizard. A bird wizard. Not a bird wizard. wizard. But a wizard. Yeah, bird wizard. Drink of choice. Allergic to alcohol. But if I could drink it, I would take a Manhattan. You're allergic to alcohol. That is like a curse. I would, I don't know what I would do. Oh my God. Smoke a lot of weed. That's probably what you would do. There you go. Amen. Don't ask me like, how I know. Okay. <laughs> I like it. And I love a good Manhattan too. Yeah. Uh, instrument you wish you played. Well, unfortunately, I broke my wrist when I was a child, and I can't can't turn my wrist all the way around. So I wish I could play the guitar. Wow, that is interesting. I know it sucks. Man, uh, favorite city? L.A. Guilty pleasure food? Um, guilty pleasure food? Probably chocolate chip cookie dough. Oh yeah, raw yeah. the dough itself. Yeah, the dough. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was really good. And, and musical guilty pleasure. Well, who's your Debbie Gibson? Who is my, De- who is my musical guilty pleasure? <laughs> I mean, I love, I like pop music. I mean, I, I'm kind of like when I would DJ, I would never DJ pop, but I kind of like pop music. So in a way, I guess that's my guilty pleasure. Like I loved WAP. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it, it's like the number one song. So I don't know if that can be a guilty pleasure. It's so funny. My nephews, my young nephews, teenage boys, like, man, did you check this out? You got to see this. And I'm like, okay, sure. I'm like, oh my God. I know. It's it's, it's it's raunchy. But then you walk away humming it. You're like, oh man. I know, right? It's catching. It's good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Christina, this has been awesome. I really appreciate you joining us. No worries. Thank you so much for having me. Be sure to like, follow, share, and comment on Instagram and Facebook. Being a career musician is more than just gigs and sessions. Are you a career musician? Find out on the Career Musician Podcast, streaming everywhere. I'm just a nomad, nowhere man. Writing the songs in this one man band. I know man, yeah. I'm a no man. 
Hey, this is Nomad, host and creator of the Career Musician Podcast, and I am thoroughly stoked to be an official member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Pantheon Podcast Network is the first of its kind as an all-music-based podcast collective. Please be sure to check us out at pantheonpodcast.com for more info. 